This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 is brought to you by Fits for Good. I think the good thing was that I started in teaching. I mean, I was literally went into a class for the first time and could not sign. The children who are the least judgmental and yet are the most judgmental taught me to (laughs) sign. And so I learned the authentic way of signing from the deaf. This is Vitz Impacts for Good and I'm Eusebius McKaiser. From the age of six, Professor Claudine Storbeck knew she wanted to dedicate her adult life to the study of the deaf community. Having no background or intimate familial connection with the deaf, it was the children in her early years of teaching who had the greatest impact on her interest in the community. How do deaf people navigate the world and do they see themselves as living with a disability? What about learning to sign and understanding the nuances and intricacies of this language? These are just some of the issues that Professor Claudine, as an outsider, had to learn from very early on in her studies of the deaf. Deaf people see themselves as capital deaf. So it's a cultural and linguistic minority group. South African Sign Language in South Africa being their first language. It's actually got nothing to do with disability at all. It's just, we are deaf. You know, you're Zulu with a capital Z, you're Afrikaans with a capital A. We're deaf with a capital D. South African Sign Language is our first language. And it's highly offensive to be referring to the deaf community in the community and linguistic sense as disabled. In this podcast series, we introduce you to Wits University originators and academics who through their unique research, are trying to solve the world's most pressing challenges. Learning sign language is as difficult as any other language to master. It is the use of facial expressions, body language, and non-verbal cues that assist in the understanding of the language of the deaf. Then there are the differences in how people use sign language, according to their gender, personality traits, and ways of expression. Professor Storbeck's research into the early detection of deafness in babies sees her advocating for universal newborn screening, not only in developed countries, but in lower-income societies as well, ensuring the human rights of every child are upheld. It is an absolute delight to be in conversation with Professor Claudine Storbeck, who, of course, is director of Wits University's Center for Deaf Studies and is the person that I will be in conversation with in this latest iteration of our podcast series in which we show off some excellent Wits originators, originators of ideas and academic research and making sure that we breach that gap between the academy and the public. Claudine, thank you so much for giving up your time uh, to help us understand the work that you are doing. Thanks, Eusebius. Uh, Wonderful to be here. I want to start firstly with you. It's very rare at the age of six or seven for someone to know what they want to do. And if they do know what they want to do with their life, it's normally, I want to be a pilot or I want to be a doctor. Why on earth at a young age did you think that you wanted to devote your adult life to deaf studies and the deaf community? Yeah, it's an interesting question. Um, I've never really discovered why. I think I obviously saw um, the Helen Keller movie at some stage in my life. Mm. Um, And it's one of those really corny things. But at the age of six or seven, I knew this is all I was going to do in my life. And if I couldn't do that, there would be no second prize. I'd just be sitting at home doing nothing. So (laughs) this is literally why I was put on earth. So, yeah, very clear in my mind. Because many people who end up learning sign 
or take the kind of pedagogical interest that you have in deaf studies normally would come into this because, I don't know, they fell in love with someone who is maybe deaf or mom and dad might have been deaf and it could be your first language. None of those obvious cases applied in your situation, right? No, and I think in some respects people would see that as a weakness, um, but I've seen it as a very particular strength. So I have no hang-ups, no chips on my shoulders and, and no bias. So I come with no history which has really been a good thing. So in terms of research coming in with unbiased eyes and in terms of just coming in and being able to see the gaps and serve and support where it has been needed as opposed to, you know, meeting the needs within myself. So both a strength and a weakness, but Mm. yes, I think it's been a blessing not to have any background or history in deafness. This isn't just about language, it is fundamentally about community, which is why social linguistics is such a fascinating study. If you are an outsider, it gives you certain research advantages, I would imagine. You are able to have a critical distance from the struggles of a community. On the other hand, if you're not part of a community, you don't have natural buy-in. Over the years, if you go back to your early research years, Claudine, how difficult was it to befriend, to be trusted by this social linguistic community? Because although I'm sure they are grateful to have academics take a serious and genuine interest in them, that at the same time, you're not of the community. Yeah, totally. I think the, the good thing was that I started in teaching. I mean, I was literally went into a class for the first time and could not sign. And the children who are the least judgmental and yet are the most judgmental taught me to <laughs> sign. And so I learned the authentic way of signing from the deaf and then moved into the school hospital, uh, hostel and lived with them. So I soon became an insider well, as insider as one can become um, as a non-deaf person. Mm. Um, And I'm a fluent signer, but from the outset, I always knew I wasn't working for the deaf, but with the deaf. Mm. And so if there was no teacher training program, I thought, well, we better start developing a teacher training program. And then I went to Vits to do that. And I realized as well, I can't do this on my own. And so I started finding deaf colleagues. So I don't think they're grateful to me. Um, I think they're just happy to be working with me. And no, but I'm still an outsider, hey? One, one is never truly an insider. Um, mm. But being able to be, be, being fluent in the language and understanding the culture and the, the, the humor has mm. helped. Um, but no, uh, I, I'm, I'll never be part of the community. And uh, one of my deaf friends actually told me one day, she said, if we're in a burning room <laughs> and, you know, you know, I love you and you're a friend of mine, but there's a deaf person there and it's a deaf enemy. Mm. I'm going to save my deaf enemy. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Claudine, disability is not politically and socially taken as seriously in South Africa as it ought to be. We're obviously better now than we were maybe 20 years ago, but we've got some way to go. Language matters. And here I want you to help the public, the curious person, who may not know their terminology and their politics in relation to disability. Is being deaf seen as and experienced as a disability? And is it just politically correct to to think of someone who's deaf as differently abled? What is the reality here, regardless of virtuous intention? 
because deaf people see themselves as capital deaf, so it's a cultural and linguistic minority group, South African sign language in South Africa being their first language, it's actually got nothing to do with disability at all. It's just mm. we are deaf as, you, you know, you're Zulu with a capital Z, you're Afrikaans with a capital A, we're deaf with a capital D, South African sign language is our first language, and it's highly offensive to be referring to the deaf community in the community and linguistic sense as disabled. Mm. So it's very offensive, not because of the political um, disability speak, but because of who they are as a community. But deaf people do acknowledge that the lack of hearing, um, the inability to hear is a physical disability that they experience. But because they belong to this linguistic and cultural minority group, they openly reject any reference to disability. One of the unintended gifts, if one is prosaic about it, that comes with that physical disability is that you have had to learn ways in which to give expression to your thoughts and to your full person. I want you to articulate a little bit the interdisciplinary or cross-disciplinary nature of the work that you do at your center. For example, I know that you also have a profound anthropological interest in the sociolinguistic community in the sense that you may be able to use dance, facial expression, how you comport, all sorts of technologies that are available to you from your body as a technology to anything else to be able to give full artistic expression to what, what is in your head and what is in your heart. That must be, must be both functionally necessary for deaf people but it must also be a beautiful thing to observe as an outsider, as a researcher, in terms of the creativity that is on fleek. Man, I've never been asked that question before. I love that question. I think you should come and study with us and just to get involved <laughs> in our work. Well, it's, it's the work that you do. I've heard you before speaking about these issues with so much passion that it's made me take it more seriously. So all the kudos go to you as an educator. Definitely, I would first start by saying deaf people are masterful communicators. Because deaf people, first of all, are visual spatial communicators, they are masterful observers. So they will know that you're feeling sick before you've, you know it because they pick up on those very fine nuances and they notice shades of color and, and differences in your body and the way you present yourself. The other thing is they're so used to being the ones to make accommodations that they're having to continually read you. So in kind of communication 101, if you're looking at the messenger, the receiver and the message, they are the ones that are continually coding and decoding, coding and decoding and are masterful at it. And um, particularly now during the pandemic where everyone has been so put out and so stressed about having to go electronic and online and all these changes and students and staff and deaf people, the large majority of them um, have been unfazed by this Mm. because change and adaptation is who they are. And so that's the one thing I wanted to mention in terms of the research we do. Um, Currently, we've been really had an exciting project in in partnership with the University of Manchester called the Deaf Cam Project, where we've been looking at resilience of deaf children and deaf teenagers using um, film and uh, other, you know, movies and film or, or photography. And it's been remarkable to see film experts come in and do training 
and at how astounded they were at the innate ability of deaf children to understand really complex aspects of film and theoretical aspects of film without any training. And that's, again, we know because they feel and grow up kinesthetically and holistically as visual people. Mm. And so their photographs and their films are masterful. And one can see some of those on our website, um, Centre for Deaf Studies, under the Deaf Cam project. I want to talk a little bit about the language more directly. How difficult is it to learn sign, particularly when there is not just variation across countries, but also between individuals in terms of how their personalities are brought to sign? I mean, it's it's as difficult as learning any language. However, I would probably say, for example, for a South African, I've heard Zulu, I've heard Sutu, I've heard Kosa. So I've had access to these languages. So they've fallen on my ears, and yet I still have battled to learn Zulu. So in this Afunda is Zulu, it's tough, Mm. I'm still learning it. But to learn sign language, for people who are, oral, oral, we are not used to using our bodies and our faces and our, our movement. So it's very foreign. And so typically a person would take one year to become conversationally adept, but mm. two to three years to really learn the language. Um, yeah, it's a difficult language. I mean, and of course I'm still learning. I'm, I may be fluent, but I'm learning every day. And um, one has to be teachable, have a good sense of humor and not be embarrassed to make a fool of yourself. So, so as with non-sign languages, what is the umbrella word? Oral, oral languages, whatever, yes, whatever oral the language. word is, yes. right? Yeah. We have differences in accent, you know, whether you speak English, Afrikaans or whatever. Some of us might, might speak Plat Afrikaans, all sorts of different yes. ways. When it comes to sign, is there similar kind of variation? If you walk past children in the playground, who are signing, are you able to intuit personality differences? I mean, definitely your personality differences. There are definitely gender differences, <laughs> sexual orientation differences, mm-hmm. um, and definitely uh, uh, provincial differences. So there are definitely um, different ways. And of course, mm-hmm. then there's, of course, the different ways you sign um, in terms of where you are. Mm-hmm. So if you're chatting to someone and using a bit of slang, um, there's, there's a very particular type of slang called multi-channeling mm. in South African signage and signage in general that kids use that no matter how well you sign as a hearing person, multi-channels are the things that get you, even if you're a hearing fluent signer. But the way we sign in public, the way you sign in academic environments, um, you play with the language just as you would. So yeah, a lot oh, of accents, but lots of personality, senses mm. of humour, every nuance that you could get in I've a I've always language. wanted to know, Claudine, whether nuance yes. is lost in sign language, whether there are enough signs to be able to cater oh. for complexity. So let, let me take a, let's take a, a, a lekker South African example. And lekker sure. is actually a good, a good case in point. But the word I was going to use is braai. You and I know there's a difference. Uh, between a barbecue and a braai, it evokes different things. It's got different social and cultural connotations. And the sense of the word, even though the grammatical meaning may be the same, differs across Afrikaans and English. If you were doing interpretation of me giving a speech 
and I said the word braai rather than barbecue, would you indicate that in two different ways or in the same way and cut your losses? Oh, no. Totally different signs. In fact, I think there are numerously more nuances <laughs> than there are in spoken languages. Oh, my word. Yeah. No, the things that we are able to say in sign, the variations, and the, I promise you, Eusebius, if you could sign, my friend, mm. you would be enjoying this linguistic journey. This is a challenge. You should definitely be doing sign language with us. How important is it and what progress has been made, and I know this is part of your research, to detect as early as possible whether a baby may be hard of hearing or deaf because the sooner they one can recognize that. Firstly, tell me what are the benefits of early detection and then what technologies or diagnostic tools are available to be able to, to detect that early on? You know, it's, it's quite shocking to realize that the ears develop very, very soon on. And so in utero, Children that have hearing are already learning. And so when, once they are born, there is already a level, level of auditory and intellectual development based on the ear. And so children detect it almost at birth. And that's why we're proposing universal, which means every baby that is born, universal newborn hearing screening. So the developed world has been doing universal newborn screening of newborns for decades. And it is a really reasonably cheap little test that one does before the child is discharged from hospital. In the absence of that, what kind of human rights injustices are we perpetuating in terms of the intellectual and the psychosocial development of all children? I think one of the biggest problems we've had with the World Health Organization always talking about, you know, is it, is it, detrimental to life? Does it impact on life and death? And you're right, this is a human rights issue and it impacts on quality of life. And so without language, one cannot have equal and accessible communication. Without language or the language rights, teachers don't learn to sign properly. So children are in schools being taught by teachers who aren't even fluent at an academically accessible way to the language. Mm. Um, you know, we're, we're getting such beautiful access to sign language over the, this pandemic. But, you know, acknowledging that it's been a fun way and it's created a lot of awareness, but this is a human right. And they should be getting access to information in their first language all the time. Mm. Um, but yes, the basic foundations of access to information and therefore access to thought and access to the relationship with your parents. How do you build a relationship with your family if you aren't able to communicate effectively, you know, develop your own identity as a person? So it's, it's fundamentally a human rights issue, which South Africa really needs to get in, in charge of here. Which brings me to precisely the second last issue I wanted to explore with you. What is the state of debate on the question of to mainstream or not to mainstream in terms of children that are, who are deaf. I can see the advantage of being part of a community of children that have similar needs as you, reduce or eliminate discrimination institutionally, hopefully. And yet at the same time, that, that you know, when you step out into the world, when you leave the school play playground, I often think this when I go to Rosebank and I see the deaf kids 
in communication with with each other from the nearby school. And I think Kumasal, it's fantastic and it's beautiful. Their, their right to education is being enjoyed. But of course, as they scatter and go into taxis and different parts of the mall, the big groups become smaller groups, become groups of two and eventually one. And at some point, you are interfacing with someone who's not deaf. And I've often had a thought that I haven't because I'm not a parent, I had to think through uh, practically. And I thought to myself, I wonder what choices I would make for my child educationally in that regard. Yeah, it's highly contentious because, again, if it were my child, I would want them to be, you know, be close to home. Um, I'm so glad you said mainstreaming instead of inclusion because that whole misunderstanding of inclusion being the best thing, we're including our children, whereas mm. actually inclusion, which deaf people really opposed was actually the most excluding aspect of education for them. If we were to mainstream children, um, include them, the key thing is access. So as long as they're getting equal access to information, it is an important thing to consider. Deaf children, if they had a choice, would want to be taught in a school for the deaf. We actually started our own pilot school through the Centre for Deaf Studies to test whether children actually were accessing enough information and through the program that we'd worked with in High Hopes, which is an early intervention program, by the time the children got to school at three or four, they had already had language since birth. Our children that had graduated out of High Hopes were more advanced than the children that had not had high hopes. So Mm -hmm. parents were starting to say, the level of deaf education is not what we want it to be. And so Mm -hmm. parents became demanding, saying the current deaf education standards are not where it should be. And so I'm very open to mainstreaming. I'm very open to getting equal access to education, education standards. And at the same time, the linguistic right, the cultural right of a child to be able to mix equally with their colleagues and peers is a right. But that's why we're thinking, you know, bilingual, bimodal, bicultural and multicultural are ways that we need to start thinking out of the box so mainstreaming in the old sense of just putting a deaf child in a hearing school, I think that's an old-fashioned way of seeing it, mm-hmm. but making schools more accessible linguistically and culturally and um, multimodally. So now you're bringing in not just a different language, but a different modality. So mm-hmm. is it contentious? Yes. I think all options are out there. You can put a child in a school for the deaf in a mainstream with a unit or a class or support for deaf children. They can be mainstreamed without any support if they get really good amplification like hearing aids or cochlear implants mm. because a lot of children don't need sign language. And so, again, what's contentious is which language do we use? Some deaf kids need sign language because they have no access to sound. But with modern technology, there is a choice that parents can make to only use listening and speaking. Mm. And very often parents are saying, well, I think I want to use the best of both and see which way the child goes and that the child can choose later. So actually, this is the best time ever Mm. to be born deaf because there are so many choices and there's such great technology. And we know so much about what deaf children can do and we can really push the limits to make sure that they're getting equal education, which has not been happening very well in the past. Besides the obvious human rights issues that are important to living well, if you are deaf, on a very personal level, tell us why deaf studies for you, Claudine, is profoundly intellectually engaging and interesting. 
oh my word, I should have gotten that question ahead of time so I could really have reflected. <laughs> I've always wondered, Eusebius, am I a real academic? Because mm. for me, it always starts hands dirty in the field. Mm. When I see a grieving parent, grieving mm. the loss of this child that they thought they would have, impacting on the mental health and the dynamic of the family, impacting on relationships, and then seeing that long-term devastation it causes in the family and therefore the community and therefore the nation, where they are then not taxpaying citizens going forward, it's real life to me that is then really what happens as we then look ethnographically internally at the research. So it's almost the opposite of the ivory tower. It's when we see what's happening in the real world, we say, well, what can we learn authentically in situ and then take it, present it academically to give it more status and then learn from it and improve. There's something important about that, Claudine, isn't there? Because there's this false dichotomy between praxis and theory within the academy. And if you do, for example, social work or applied studies, sometimes even quite literally, you will be in a house that's on the periphery of campus, slightly off campus even. Many centers that do that kind of work are off campus. I come from Grahamstown, now Makanda, and I think about how some of the excellent social work is done in buildings that are physically off the main campus. But there's something accidental about the history of the academy rather than the work that you do being less academic than someone who's doing pure maths. I tend to (laughs) disparagingly think that is second class sometimes where Mm. if one only does things in your head, then Mm. what is the true value? You know, Mm. does the tree really fall over if no one's there? You know, so what? But I think the whole thing of publish or perish is really real. And if we just do things anecdotally to make people happy and there are really happy people out there and we don't share what we know, we don't learn from it, our practice doesn't improve, then that's just as problematic. And so from day one, we have collected data. From day one, we've been extremely interested in what we learn and what we can share. And in fact, two of my deaf colleagues, so there are three academics in the Center for Deaf Studies and about a 100 non-academics working in the field and the communities, but both my deaf academics have just recently got their PhDs. Oh, wow. And great. so we are becoming an, an academic community where one hearing woman, two deaf men, and it's growing the academics where deaf people are doing research into their own language, into their own um, lifestyles, into their own lived experiences, which is also important. And then sharing it academically, of course, gives it more authority. And when you get peer-reviewed, you're showing that I'm able to take criticism, take critique, and I'm not getting involved in the politics. And so because disability and language and Mm. hearing aids and cochlear implants and sign language is so politically fraught, we try and pull ourselves out of the politics Mm. by doing research and showing that one can rise above that and yet still make a difference. We're already out of time. I've got so many more questions for you. I must get you uh, into another edition of this series, but just a quick one, two, two quick ones if we can. Tell us something fun in terms of the advantages of signing. I think, for example, of how I am a little bit fluent, not as fluent as I'd like to be in Gale. And one of the nice things about Gale, uh, which is a language that gay people 
um, particularly effeminate gay people on the Cape Flats hey, yeah. learned. And it's got a very simple structure, but if you if you not if you don't know the structure, it is fantastic because we can gossip loudly about you in front of you. You wouldn't have a clue what we are talking about. It must be wonderful to be able to sign and be with your deaf colleagues or with anyone within the deaf community um, and be able to communicate. And the the rest of us are unable to know what the hell is going on. Absolutely. Um, but what's more interesting is to see how deaf people gossip and whisper <laughs> amongst themselves because how do you, how do you whisper visually um, and mm-hmm. the type of nuances when everyone can see? And then I think that one of the most exciting things is just deaf humor and deaf art. And so when you see deaf expression, it is so different. One doesn't realize how different a culture and community becomes through language. And so I've just so enjoyed deaf sense of humor and deaf art. It's such a beautiful um, point, Claudine, because I think many of us look at the deaf community as at best attempting to survive, but never in terms of the full gamut of emotion and social life as the rest of us, which obviously is <laughs> profoundly just false. I've been in the deaf world now for, I think, 27 years and um, at WITS for 22 years. And I'll still meet deaf people that I've known for many years. And, you know, they've bought homes, they're paying, paying off homes, they've got children. And I just think they have achieved and flourished despite mm. such a bad background. And I think I cannot imagine where deaf people would be if they had an equal start. And if we do get to that point, we'll have a deaf president very soon because we have such successful deaf people despite such bad starts because they become so intuitive. That they and such last but not least, was your career all downhill after signing for Madiba's inauguration? Oh my word, no. That was just the first and wonderful step in so much more things. Um, you're going to have to come visit at the Centre for Deaf Studies so you can see all the wonderful things that has happened. But in fact, I think inaugurations went downhill after I signed because then we just had the terrible things happening at uh, Obama's <laughs> inauguration. That is so true, which shall not be, <laughs> not be uh, revived and remembered. Claudine, the work you do is absolutely stunning. Thank you for sharing a portion of it with us. Thank you so much. Thanks for interviewing me and just getting deafness out there. Thanks, Eusebius. Thank you. This Impacts for Good podcast series with 702 was brought to you by Vets for Good.